Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Levinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak to all kinds of amazing creators and pioneers doing very cool things in business and beyond. Listeners can now support the continued growth of the show. Thanks to our friends at Glow in Seattle. Go to glow.fm slash e2 if you're interested. That's glow.fm slash e2. We're asking for $5 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you like. So if you enjoy the content we're producing here and e2 is part of your pod routine, check it out. This episode is brought to you by Metro Online Grocery, offering the same full assortment you'll find in store. Metro Online Grocery saves you time without sacrificing freshness by shipping groceries direct to your door. With delivery throughout the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, your groceries are carefully hand-selected and delivered 100% fresh. You can shop flyer deals online, choose what you want, and schedule your preferred delivery time in just a few minutes. Order before 1 p.m. for same day. Visit metro.ca and use the code E215 for $15 off your order of $50 or more. That's E215 for $15 off. For freshness delivered to your door, it's metro.ca. This is episode 60, and for this one, we're going slightly against the grain. Today's guest is not an entrepreneur per se, but still one of the most connected individuals to the tech ecosystem and to the world of entrepreneurship. It's my great conversation with Danny Lipkin, who carries the role of innovation sector head for the Toronto Stock Exchange and the TSX Venture Exchange. In this capacity, he's responsible for working with private companies and their shareholders as they explore and consider the option of raising equity capital in Canada. And in this very deep dive into all things IPO, we discuss all the steps to a public offering, the profile of a company that Danny and his team look for, common misconceptions about going public, the differences between taking private versus public money, some of the Canadian tech unicorns that went public early as a growth strategy, and so much more. So without delay, please enjoy this very wide-ranging chat with the TSX's Danny Lipkin. What's news today? Is there anything that's sort of top of mind? What's been an interesting dynamic in the markets for the last little bit has been tech big tech unicorns and their, um, how they've been doing the market in the U.S. I know that's kicked up some storm. Um, I think it's interesting overall of just how tech on the public markets performs in Canada. And it was interesting. I was with a venture capitalist today and just reminding them again of, you know, year to date, it's up nearly 50% and it's been the best performing index overall in North America over the last kind of five years. Not best, but one of the best. The TSX has, that is. TSX tech index specifically. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're talking about tech in Canada, you know, we talk about uh, all these large financing activities happening in the private market, but here's, you know, some great performing companies in the public markets that maybe don't get always the right attention overall. So I had this tabled for later, but you mentioned the US stories. So, um, couple of stats that you'll be familiar with. So Uber IPO'd on May 10th, yep. saw its shares drop 11% in one day, resulting in the biggest first day dollar loss in IPO history in the US. And then 
as of October 1st, I think Uber shares were trading nearly 30% off its IPO price. I think that percentage is, is still about right. And Lyft has seen a similar story play out, and their stock price is way down since its IPO. And then, of course, uh, the halting of WeWork is like front and center, um, or halting of WeWork's public offering, I should say. What impact do these stories have, specific impacts as it relates to the tech sector in your space? You know, overall, it's interesting that we've seen these big, high-profile names that haven't necessarily performed as one would expect, but they also were provided with a lot of capital uh, in the private markets, and they had very high valuations going into uh, a public offering. Um, it's not to say that these aren't going to be great long-term businesses. I think for a lot of people, it was just a question of valuation overall when they went public. Um, and you know, in some of these cases, stating the fact that they may never be profitable uh, ever was interesting to read about. And, you know, I think a lot of these businesses you have to look at in a five, 10 year window. It's always hard to measure the success of a public company in a six month period. You know, these are all built to be long term generational businesses overall. And I think that's when we have to really monitor and measure the success of how they perform on the public markets. I think Lyft had the single biggest financial loss heading into an IPO in history, annual loss, that is. And and you talked about the question of valuation, but are are you seeing a paradigm shift happening right now to a profit first kind of a mindset given these stories that have popped up? Are we still sort of focused on growth? I think it's a bit of both. I think investors want to continue to see top line growth overall um, to ensure that, you know, businesses are hitting all their strides. There are some investors uh, who want to see a path towards profitability, maybe in the near term future than others would have wanted. Um, And it's always interesting for the company to manage that dynamic expectations of investors who want growth at all costs versus some investors who want to see, okay, you've had great growth over the last number of years. Now let's see the bottom line. Let's see profitability. And It's an interesting challenge overall for a CEO to manage those different expectations of their investors. How does a CEO manage those expectations? And is it is it a certain type of personality that's best suited toward steering the ship of a publicly traded company versus a private one, let's say? I don't think necessarily it matters whether it's public or private. I think it's understanding and working well with your investor base overall. You know, it's very key, as we say, for public markets is to know who your shareholders are and to properly communicate your long-term strategy to them. That would be the same in the private sector, right? As you especially have less liquidity, you're obviously going to know who your private shareholders are at all times in the public markets. You know, there are instances where you don't necessarily know who owns your uh, shares, but as they get to a certain level of traction and A, they must report publicly how much their holdings are, it's key to have those shareholders aligned with your long-term vision and to understand, okay, maybe there wasn't profit in the last few quarters, but understand why we've been spending money and why this is good for us in the long term. You know, it's it's easy to get wrapped up sometimes in quarter to quarter uh, results. But I think, you know, it's very important to run a business in the long term vision and 
doesn't matter if you're public or private, right? That's for all companies. The same should apply. So as innovation sector head for the TSX, Toronto Stock Exchange, and the Venture Exchange, um, you work with obviously private companies and their shareholders uh, as they explore and consider the option of, of raising equity capital in Canada. When you are asked what you do at a dinner party, how do you answer the question? I always say I am the only person in Canada who can say they have the innovation sector head uh, title to their name because I don't believe anybody has that necessarily. <laughs> what do I what do I do? I uh, I work with private companies and their shareholders and kind of educate them about what it takes to go public in Canada. Now, those private companies don't necessarily actually have to reside just in Canada alone. We work with companies all over the world. And from the innovation space, you can imagine we work fairly closely with companies in the U.S. and in Israel as two large tech innovation hubs overall and kind of bring them up to speed on what steps they need to do to get ready to go public. And then on the other side, I actually also work to help profile those companies longer term that are listed on our marketplace. Starting with steps, how does a company go about getting listed on the TSX Venture Exchange? Ultimately, they will need to meet what's called some listing requirements. So they will have to be of a certain financial uh, size. They will have had to potentially raise a certain amount of money. They have to have a certain board composition. uh, And there are different nuances involved, both from our own perspective and from a securities law perspective. Do they have the right type of profile to be a public company? Uh, and that what that means is, do they have the right mindset? Do they have the right uh, profile of a business story overall? That will appeal to the investor base. So it's key that you know that they get ready and that they get audited financial statements ready and that they select the right advisors both legal and IR and and different stakeholders who will ensure that they can go through, you know, some of the motions of going public, but, you know, are they actually ready from their own mindset? So have they got the corporate governance and the controls in place that will allow them to, you know, be a public company? You can go through all the motions, but then, you know, are you actually ready for the public market experience? Have you actually in achieving your vision in the business itself? Are you executing on the business plans that you've set to achieve? These are a lot of the kind of questions that we ask private companies, CEO, CFO, as they prepare to go public to ensure that they are actually ready. So in place, we actually have a full team of lawyers, accountants, and other kind of financial professionals who do the vetting and due diligence of companies overall. When I actually started at the TSX, I used to reside on our TSX uh, listing team is what we call it. It's part of our capital formation group. And I used to do the due diligence on new companies listing on our marketplace. Now I more sit on the other side and try and seek out new companies overall and try and find the right companies that would be of the right profile in nature to go public. And then we have a full team um, across the country in Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, Toronto, who will go and work with the company's uh, management team, their auditors, their legal counsel, and ensure they kind of meet that fun 500-page document that I was referring to earlier on and ensure that they comply with all of our necessary requirements to 
be listed on the TSX venture. Mm -hmm. So, so you mentioned mindset and business story, and if there are founders that are curious to know or to ask themselves if they do have the mindset and they do have the business story to even explore this, what sorts of questions should they be asking themselves or how could they tick those boxes? You know, the first story that we always say is, why are you going public? What are the reasons that you're going to seek to be going public? You know, the number one reason that we kind of find is that you want to access capital from the broadest investor base overall. When you are public, you have a global pool of capital available to you versus when you're private, you know, there is lots of private capital available. And I think we're at kind of a record high. But ultimately, those sources are in um, not every person's hand. You know, you can't just find you can have friends and family who can invest privately in you. But, you know, as you seek larger pools, you can't just have friends of friends invest in you. Right. And you can't. Uh, there are certain exemptions or requirements available to you to be able to invest in a private company versus on a public company. Your shares are on a global platform where anybody who wants to potentially invest in the company can come and do so. You know, the other thing we talk to people about um, is, do you want to potentially be doing acquisitions over the coming months and years ahead? And when you're a public company, you have a different currency available to acquire those companies. You have a liquid public stock, and you can utilize that to acquire other companies. And a lot of times we'll talk to people and that will be a reason why they want to go public because maybe they have a $10 million run rate business now. They see a lot of potential strategic acquisitions of companies that may only have two or $3 million of revenue and they don't want to pay cash for it. And here's another way to acquire that business is actually having this liquid shares as currency for those acquisitions. So it's thinking about the long-term growth of the company overall and why this liquid currency might work to help build out the company long-term. Can you table some of the misconceptions related to going public? Yeah. I mean, people always say being public isn't sexy, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change everybody's misconce- misconceptions. It is the sexiest thing to ever do. Uh, it is so attractive to go public. And, you know, I, I'd say, listen, the biggest reason why people don't want to go public is there is reporting requirements. And that's why people don't want to go public. That's the first thing we'll always hear is that I don't want to go public because then I'm going to have to be doing all this reporting requirements. But on the flip side, you know, if you're a founder executive who's wanting to build out your business, you know, a lot of founders and executives, there's a misconception, but they actually can potentially retain greater influence and control over the business while being public versus being private. And that sounds a bit weird of, okay, how is that possible? But you have to remember that they can still have control from a perspective of they might have majority voting control, right? It doesn't necessarily mean when you're a founder that you can't still have voting control over the company. The other thing that founders would be surprised to hear about is that how much it builds profile and credibility, both amongst your customers and your employees when you go public. If you think about a company who is selling into a financial services company, 
maybe they have a tech software. And a lot of times in the financial services business, you know, there's a lot of due diligence done when you're, you know, utilizing the service provider to ensure, you know, that the company is who they say they are and that, you know, they're going to be around for the next number of years, right? You don't want to utilize a vendor who might be belly up in the next year or two. When you're a public company and you're, a, say, a tech company selling to a financial services business, you can show them, here are our financial um, Here's our financial statements. They are publicly available. You can see that we are a very profitable company that's going to be around for the next number of years. It's also kind of a great way to attract and retain those employees. You want to attract them with something more than just, you know, a salary. Here's a liquid share that you can utilize to attract them overall. Here's a options plan to continue and in, to incent them over the coming years. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. So how is this all playing out, given what you said about private equity money being at record highs? Everybody kind of wants to be that next big CEO. And that's why I think we have this venture exchange that's a little bit different from the overall um, global stock exchange platform, is that you actually can go public at an earlier stage in Canada. And that's kind of what's happening a little bit more and more now, that maybe some people who want to retain more control are going public at an earlier stage as an alternative way to build their business to be the next tech unicorns. You know, a couple names that people may not realize were that went public on the TSX Venture Exchange and grew into be unicorns are, you know, Canopy Growth, you know, one of the largest cannabis companies overall. Or, the, the largest, actually, I yeah, think, globally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah the largest overall. Um, Night Therapeutics. I'm not sure if you're too familiar with their name. Uh, and Jonathan Goodman, who had previously built Paladin Labs, started off his next iteration on the TSX Venture Exchange and has grown that into be a unicorn. The Stars Group, they were a TSX venture company who has grown into be a unicorn overall. These were companies, again, that started off on the smaller stage on the public markets, utilized public venture capital to help build and grow their business and became unicorns. The availability of capital, you know, as you mentioned, it's greater than ever. There's a lot of private capital out there, but the public markets are also growing in size and status. If you actually look at our public tech overall market cap. So the aggregate market cap of all tech companies listed on our two exchanges four years ago was $78 billion. Halfway through this year, it's $161 billion. We have $3 trillion of capital on the TSX and venture. These are massive markets attracting a global pool of investors. And I think it's just the nature that we're seeing a lot of companies interested and what the public markets could do for them overall. Um, yes, there is available private capital, but there's also a huge 
amounts of public capital available. Yeah. And you mentioned stages. So I think that's something that I mean, listeners will, will want to be, uh, I guess, informed about. So if, if, if we have entrepreneurs or founders that are running a business that's scaling up and they've been reading slides at, say, a PE conference or a VC conference that says, okay, so uh, enterprise value between three and 200 million uh, is ripe for venture. And then beyond that, maybe you seek to go public between, say, 50 uh, 50 million in enterprise value and up what you guys are doing at the venture exchange obviously isn't consistent with that messaging. So, so what are the stages that, that founders could explore this uh, or how early could they explore this if they wanted to? So typically what we would say to a company who's looking to go public on the TSX V would be a funding size in the range of two to $25 million. What the enterprise value would look like for the last number of years, the kind of average size of an innovation company listing on the TSXV or the average market cap has been about 35 to $40 million at the time of listing. That's the average number. So that's the kind of typical profile where you know they've been around for a few years. They're having a few million dollars of revenue where it's kind of predictable. Recurring revenue is obviously the preference. I think that's for every single business. Um, and they need growth capital. So they need capital to hire, acquire, or just overall grow the top line revenue. And there's a management team in place that is kind of has a track record of doing this. That is a good type of profile for the public markets overall. And it's you know probably earlier than people think you go public. Normally, when you see a top line revenue for a TSX tech company, it will typically be in the 50 to $100 million range overall at the time of going public. But obviously, this venture side is quite different, You know, where the average revenue is usually just a few million dollars overall. And the company has, as I said, only been around for a few years. Are big trends important to, to I guess, to you and the exchange as they are to VCs and private equity firms, for example, fintech or enterprise SaaS, uh, digital health, et cetera? Yeah, so the big macro trends, similar to how they're going in the private spectrum, they're also follow suit in the public world. We are constantly trying to seek out and look for what those major trends are, not just next six months, but the next number of years, because those will be the companies that will go public over the coming years, those bigger macro trends. So AI, fintech, Obviously, all this SaaS and cloud-based businesses that have been doing so well over the last few years, and I think will continue to do well, that sector overall will continue to grow in nature. That's the type of companies that if they will do well in the private world, they should be rewarded similarly in the public world. Going back to some of the key differences I wanted to ask you about, uh, so we'd already covered the financial reporting stuff. Um, You had quickly mentioned governance. So... What would be the difference in terms of governance day-to-day and or governance requirements for a company that is operating under the microscope of of a VC or a private equity investor versus um, potentially the public markets? So it's not that there will necessarily be a huge difference in the governance overall. What we do say is that every private company should actually be acting like a public company. even if they have no plans to ever go public, because 
the controls and governance that a lot of the VCs, PEs will have in place will be very similar to what is required on the public markets. So internal controls on your financial reporting systems and being able to deliver financial statements in a timely basis after the end of each quarter and to produce you know, management reports uh, at the end of quarters, at the end of every year. Um, a lot of PE and VCs will have those same types of requirements on their portfolio companies. And I guess that's the key difference is that, you know, it is a legal requirement in the public sphere versus in the private sphere is not necessarily a requirement overall. But companies just tend to want to act like public companies because it gives them a disciplined approach and it allows you to better understand what is going on with your business in a timely fashion. So when entrepreneurs and or founders of technology scale-ups are looking at stages of investment and they're saying, okay, so from ideation to uh, pre-seed, you know, it's kind of this capital raise and then uh, we're into seed, which is VCs and angels. Then we're into a series A and B and C and IPO is sort of way, way down the line. If it, if it is at all a consideration, is that narrative simply coming from the VC and private equity world because it's it's self-serving or does it generally hold true? I think it's usually coming a lot of the times from founders and CEOs themselves of it. I'm going to go public, but it's going to be in 20 years time. And if you actually look, there's been some recent reports in Canada of, you know, Asking founders, CEOs, startups, what is their ultimate plan with the company? Actually, more than 50% of the time, it says to be acquired, right? That is their Mm -hmm. goal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we need to change that goal overall in Canada to have more entrepreneurial spirit that you can build and scale a large global business out of Canada. And the ultimate goal shouldn't just be to be acquired by a larger technology company overall. And I think that's why we love seeing, you know, the last few years, what Shopify and what Lightspeed have now kind of done overall. And they've changed some of that mindset that, oh yeah, I can be in Ottawa, I can be in Montreal, I can be in Waterloo, I can be in Vancouver. It doesn't matter that you're located in Canada. You no longer just have to be located in Silicon Valley or New York or the East Coast of the US to build these large, global tech companies it is something that we can do in canada and what you know it sometimes seems unrealistic how am i going to build a 30 billion dollar business out of ottawa but it's realistic and it's what we've seen some of these canadian entrepreneurs do and i think there's slowly there's a shift in some of the thoughts of the founders and ceos we've talked to over the last few years different from previous years and we still see these reports that people still want to, you know, start a business to be acquired. But I think we're going to start to see the shift overall in that survey. And I think longer term, we'll see more people with the vision that, you know, I can build this out. And IPO is not, it's not an end game, remember. It's not, okay, we get to this point, we IPO, and that's the end of it. The IPO is, it's just a next step in the path towards building these unicorn. This is just another kind of part of the life cycle of a company overall. 
given this dynamic that, that you're describing, do, do you think it's largely driven by the the cultural conservative nature of Canadians, or, or is it something else? We speak a lot to U.S. and Israeli CEOs. You know, I think sometimes they do have larger visions overall for what types of companies they can build. And I think that we're starting to see a bit of a shift in that Canadian thought and focus overall, that it doesn't just end at, you know, we're not just selling companies in Canada. You know, when you're thinking about business, building a business, we have the 35, 40 million people in Canada, but we should always be thinking about selling our products and service offerings to the world. And as that kind of dynamic changes, so does the thought of, you know, how big the businesses we can build out of Canada. We have done very well, and don't get me wrong, we've um, built some great global businesses out of Canada, but I think we need to continue to build on that success and build that out even more. And of course, we get the advantage of sitting over the largest economy in the world, right? Yep. The, the, and our largest trading partner. Geographically speaking, that's a huge advantage. What about stress? So when you talk, you talked a little bit earlier about mindset. So having the right mindset for a public offering, the CEO obviously has to have a certain tolerance for this, a certain tolerance or personality type uh, to handle the stress that comes with going public. How do you answer questions related to founders who have this concern? So we actually want to encourage people to have a good, fulsome understanding of what it is to be public. And that's why we, for a lot of companies, we will work with them for a number of years of educating them on how to be prepared and understanding kind of what is a day in the life of a CEO, CFO of a public company and what part of the time you're going to have to attribute to things you weren't necessarily doing before, like the financial reporting the IR, the meeting with shareholders, and knowing what can happen after a quarter that maybe your results weren't as great and being able to realize that you need to have the long-term vision because, you know, unfortunately, not every company will hit their exact quarter forecasts, right? It's just the realistic nature that you're going to miss earnings expectations. And knowing that you can't lose sight of what's going to happen long-term. And, you know, if unfortunately your stock does go down 10% after a poor earnings result, how you, you know, take that in stride and how you don't let that overwhelm you and how you continue on with your vision overall, because it is tough, you know, I'm not going to lie. We're all people at the end of the day. And for a lot of these CEOs, founders, they're also very financially vested in ensuring the long-term success of these companies, right? If yep. you've been funding, bootstrapping these companies from early days, you probably have a uh, a good chunk of shares in your own company. And, you know, when that stock goes down 10 to 15 percent, that's also your own personal loss that you're seeing happen. So how do you continue to execute on your business when you have these small bumps along the road and um, not let it overwhelming, not let it overwhelm you? Many times, you know, I, I will see a CEO on their first day of trading, and I'll say, just don't look at what the stock's going to do at 931. They ultimately always do. Uh, and I always do as well to look at it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's human nature. You're going to look at what the stock's trading at. But, you know, for that first minute, what could you do? There's absolutely nothing. It's outside of your control. And 
focus on the things that you can control. And investors are going to reward those who do well long term with building the business. Yeah, and, and speaking of uh, Toby Lukey yeah. of, of Shopify, I think he's famous uh, for saying to his entire company, please don't look at the stock price. Yeah. Uh, his message to his team is, you know, let's stay hyper-focused on the business. What's happening in the public markets is not really our concern. No, exactly. Um, he, he says it very eloquently because that is the exact point of what are you going to do day to day to be able to really seismically shift uh, the stock price? You know, these are all, we're creating long-term investors here and you should be focused on doing the business and working on the business and growing it overall. And look at what Shopify has done over the course of the last five years, right? They've been tirelessly and relentlessly focused on building out the company overall. And you can see how the stock price has kind of performed over the course of those five years. Um, mm -hmm. And it really does start from the top. It's the CEO saying, let's not get sidetracked by the fact that we're public and you're all going to look up, you know, what your shares are worth on a day to day and hopefully not hour to hour basis. It's human nature. They're so going to look. But while they're at work, they should just be focused on trying to help build the company overall. What about those that say the markets are highly irrational and emotional? And, you know, despite what we do to execute our business plan, that doesn't always translate into a higher stock price. So I won't get into um, market theory here and uh, Warren Buffett's saging advice on value investing overall. Uh, the markets long term will reward the companies that perform the best, you know. Moment mm -hmm. to moment, there's a rationality, right? Uh, something, somebody will pick up some part of a quarterly release and maybe not understand the full news of what that means. And there might be an irrational seller, but that could get, you know, quickly wiped out by people reading the full some news, speaking to the company and understanding what is happening with the company overall. So sometimes we do see random blips in the market that can't be explained, right? It might be, a short seller covering their position sometimes too, or it might be a small trader who was trying to put a position on a company. You know, we can't explain those nuances necessarily minute to minute always, but we always look at what's the one in five year performance of the company overall. And actually when I look at my screen of how I track companies, that's actually the only performance metric that I have. It's what's one in five year performance of a star because three, six months isn't necessarily going to tell any story whatsoever. Let's switch sides for a moment to the uh, public investor side. So what questions should everyday investors looking to put some money to work into the public markets be asking themselves, generally speaking? And what research do you suggest that they do before investing if they don't have time to say read a full S1 or something like that? read through, understand the business, read analyst coverage of what the business is doing. You know, companies also have great IR teams who are happy to help and, you know, potentially answer any questions that the investor community might have overall. Don't just go on Reddit and uh, look at what is trending overall or go on some of the message boards because, you know, a lot of times that can be bots for all we know that are just producing random uh, bits of information on a company. 
you know, go straight to the company. That is the best source of information. Read their investor presentations. Read their quarterly news results. Um, digest that information. Listen to the analyst calls. You know, those are publicly available. Anybody can dial into those calls and hear what the company's CEO and CFO are talking about. You know, um, get it straight from the source. You know, in this uh, fake news cycle that some people purport is going on right now, but I'm not going to get into what that is. Always go straight to the source of information, and that is the company itself. They're the ones with the most reliable information out there who can provide you with accurate knowledge to what the company is doing and is attempting to do longer term. What is their growth plans? What markets are they trying to enter into? How much does it actually cost them to acquire a customer? How much is recurring revenue? Just ask the company directly and as much as they can share. Now, obviously, there is some information uh, in between quarters or just general confidential information related to the company that they may not be able to disclose. But for the majority part, it is all on the record. It is all publicly available. Is there anything that we didn't cover that we should in the last couple of minutes? What I always say, and this is going back to what we we're talking about for the last five minutes, if you're an investor, is do your due diligence. You know, don't just, we can't recommend securities overall, but um, remember, this is your hard-earned money that you're utilizing to potentially get long-term returns. And, you know, do the proper due diligence when investing, right? Seek professional advice if need be. You know, if you're not capable, utilize a, a professional to help you invest your money overall. Um, it, it's kind of an understated part of the markets that uh, we want people to have a good experience overall. Um, and we want to ensure that they are educated and informed when making investments. So seek out advice and, you know, don't just, as I say, read a fake Twitter bot who's saying to buy the security. Don't take that as advice. Right. Um, and, and don't go on Reddit. Do not go on. Uh, go on Reddit for other things. You know, Reddit does have great memes. But for investing advice, it's not to say don't go on Reddit to find information. But, you know, don't just go through and look what random person one, two, three is recommending as a security to buy. Uh, do your own proper due diligence overall. Yeah. Sage advice. OK, Danny, thanks so much. Uh, this has been great. So much good content here. And one of the most unorthodox uh, episodes that we've done, but certainly going to be valuable for listeners. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate the time. And uh, it's a great podcast. We are very happy to join you. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. If you like E2, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio. Leave us a review. Even become an exclusive supporter of the show. Visit glow.fm slash E2 to do so. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on.
Are you a fan of classic cinema or a young person who wants to discover the best films of all times? Do these legendary movies still hold up? On the Generation Film Podcast, two guys who grew up when movies dominated the culture share a great film with a panel of young movie lovers and see how it plays for today's generation. We discuss changes in storytelling styles, representation, and the making of each film, its initial reception, and how its meaning has changed over the years. Join us as we explore cinema classics across generations on Generation Film. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.